Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 38 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Linny, today we interview Candace Millard about her best-selling book, The River of Doubt. And this may come as a surprise to our listeners because in our previous episode, we reviewed The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and we normally have a guest on to discuss our book. We actually do have a guest that we have recorded an interview with, but we are going to wait just a couple weeks until we drop that episode, because we had the opportunity to interview Candace about this book. She is going to be speaking at the 27th Annual Governor's Lecture in the Humanities on September 28th. And so we wanted to get this episode dropped before that lecture so people who are interested in her work would have an opportunity to listen in to our chat on the front porch. Well, it was well worth it to rearrange our drops, Nancy, because Candace Millard is an author of four New York Times bestselling books. The books she wrote are The River of Doubt, the one we're going to be talking about today, Destiny of the Republic, Hero of the Empire, and River of the Gods. Her slice of life biographies display what NPR calls her, and I quote, knack for burrowing into a little explored corner of history and spinning out a page-turning yarn that illuminates a part of our past. Millard's second book, Destiny of the Republic, was selected as the 2012 One Book, One Lincoln. Woo-woo! <laughs> Her book, Hero of the Empire, was named Amazon's number one book in history in the year 2016. And she joins us today on the, our little front porch. I'll tell you, we now have a little bit of a history doing the one book, one Lincoln selections as well. So this is exciting. Lincoln, Nebraska is kind of setting the pace for <laughs> great books. <laughs> you have selected some good books, Nancy, as Lincoln, because this book was fascinating. I did not know very much about Roosevelt. She brings his character, his personality into light so that we know him as a, a person, a family member, his characteristics. I always questioned his inclusion on Mount Rushmore as a curious fourth president. <laughs> Reading this book, I, I understand a little bit more how he was lionized in his era, how popular he really was. And of course, Mount Rushmore was carved not too long after he was president. So kind of understand that a little bit better now. Yeah, I do too. He's kind of a bigger than life persona, I think, at one time. Many thanks to the Nebraska Humanities Council who helped arrange this interview with Candace. I mentioned she's the speaker for the 27th Annual Governor's Lecture in the Humanities. That is September 28th. 
2022 at the Lead Center for Performing Arts. And people who are interested in getting tickets can go to www.leadcenter.org. And that is spelled L-I-E-D-C-E-N-T-E-R.org. That's Lead Center, www.leadcenter.org. Well, Nance, I'm happy to hear all about how that goes at our next drop. Because I'm going to be there for the dinner in advance of the lecture and then also at the lecture. I'm so excited. Oh, I know. I wish I could join you. Well, we have an interesting time with Candace, so let's get to our interview. All right. Candace, we're so happy to welcome you to our front porch. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to meet you. We're so excited to talk to you. We loved your first book, River of Doubt, and we can't wait to talk to you about that and talk a little bit about some of your other books and the fact that you are coming to Nebraska in just a couple weeks, too, to give the governor's lecture in the humanities. I wanted to get right into it. You've written four New York Times bestselling books. One of the books tells the story of British explorers Richard Burton and John Hanning Speak, who search for the sources of the Nile, Winston Churchill's Young Life, President James Garfield's assassination, and of course, the book we're going to be talking about today, about Theodore Roosevelt's trip down the river of doubt. What interests you about these unknown stories behind these great figures of the 19th and 20th centuries? I'm a big reader like you, and I'm always looking for good ideas, and and I find them in different ways. But one of the things I have to have before I commit to an idea is I have to make sure that, yes, I have a great central character. Yes, I have a great story that I can really dive deep into, um, but also that I have a lot of primary source material to work with. So I'm just drowning in letters and diaries and newspaper articles and journals and things like that. So for each of these, each of these books I've written, I've had that in spades. And I've also been very lucky that each of the principal characters were themselves very prolific and very gifted writers. And so I can just quote from them all day and it makes me sound really smart <laughs> when it's really just their words, not mine. So that's been a real gift too. So yeah, I find them in different ways. Um, but it also, it has to be a story that I'm personally deeply interested in because it takes me about five years working on a book. And so it has to be something that I'm, I'm truly excited to work on every day. And that's absolutely been the case for each of these books. Well, you're right. You do sound very smart in your book. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you, have, you have definitely accomplished that. <laughs> Part of what is so interesting about these stories is that they are these unknown corners Mm -hmm. of these people's lives. What is it about that that you're interested in exploring? Yes, you're right. I don't write the kind of traditional cradle to grave biography. I look for um, an event in someone's life that to me is very illuminating about that person and about that time. And I do also want a story that's not really well known today. You know, as you said, I wrote about Winston Churchill. I mean, there are more books written about Churchill than anyone but Jesus, you know, a lot, a lot of books. And it's very intimidating to write about him. But 
the story I told about him took place before his political career. This is actually what launched his political career. He was 24 years old, turned 25 in this POW camp. And it's a crazy story for anyone. But you think this happened to Winston Churchill? It's crazy. And it's the same with this book we're going to talk about, River of Doubt. This is Theodore Roosevelt. Again, many books about him. But it's, it takes place after his active political career. So, so most biographies will give it a few paragraphs, but kind of said, oh, yeah, and then he went to the Amazon. But it's this insane story. Three people died on this trip. Roosevelt nearly took his own life. So it's this amazing story. And to me, it is very illuminating about who he was as a person. So that's what interests me. And also, I'll say one other thing. What interests me, I found, in these kind of famous people's lives, these sort of larger than life characters are the moments in which they're struggling, not the moments of triumph, right? When they're on the world, but the moments where they've lost their footing and they've experienced failure or sorrow or grief, something like that. That I think is when you really see someone's character. And that to me is absolutely true for each of these instances in which I've written. Boy, you see it in, in Teddy Roosevelt for sure. I did not know anything about the story. We do pick him up in a low place. He decides, as he has done before, this has worked for him before in some level. Yes. After his mother and his young wife dies, I think he goes to the Badlands. And then he does safari after two terms in the White House. And now he's thinking another trip. Exactly. No, you're you're absolutely right. This was absolutely a pattern in his life. And it even started even before his mother and his wife, his first wife died on the same night. It started when he was in college, when he was at Harvard. He was a sophomore, I think, and his father died. And he was extremely close to his father. And he was devastated. So he went to the backwoods of Maine, right? And the guide who was traveling with him said, you know, watch out for Roosevelt. He'll kill himself before he even says he's tired. I think he was only 25 years old when his his first wife and his mom died. He went to the Dakota Badlands. And uh, after leaving the presidency, even though he made that choice, right, he could have run again because his first term um, hadn't been a full term because he had taken over after McKinley was assassinated. But he said, oh, no, I'm not going to Um, I'm not going to run for president again, but he's still pretty young. He had so much more that he wanted to do. So it was a difficult decision. So yeah, he goes to Africa. And then after this, you know, losing the election of 1912, that was really hard. He wasn't, A, he wasn't used to losing. And B, he had made himself a pariah for the first time because he, he ran as a third party candidate. He split the Republican vote put a Democrat in the White House for the first time in 16 years. I mean, people were not happy with him. (laughs) And he had struggled with depression throughout his life. And so, again, he's turning to physical challenge, to danger, throwing himself in these very difficult, dangerous situations as a type of therapy. That's another interesting thread that I thought was here. The, the depression that he had, you went back to show the thread throughout some of his ancestors mm-hmm. and then how that affects Kermit mm-hmm. after they're back. That's right. I was so glad that you didn't end the book with just, okay, now we're back to civilization. But then yeah. <laughs> what happened to the characters after they got back and how this journey affected them when they came back home? 
Yeah, thank you for saying that. I always do that. So much of what I do as a writer is because that's what I want as a reader. That really defines who I am as being a reader. My kids always make fun of me. They're like, you have no hobbies. <laughs> like if I had, I mean, really, I'm terrible at crafts, terrible. But what I, if I have a free minute, I'm reading. And what I want when I'm reading... A, I want to be completely absorbed in the story. I want to forget where I am, who I am, what's going on. I want to be in this story. And B, I want to know what happens after, right? And so, um, like we were saying, since I don't write these cradle to grave, it's this moment in time. I think I need to tell people, yeah, what happened to these people then later in life? And often what happens to them is very interesting. And it does have bearing, certainly with Roosevelt, he was only 60 years old when he died. And it was just five years after this trip. And he never really recovered from this trip. Right. Yeah, it definitely has a direct correlation. So when you're reading, what kind of books do you enjoy reading? Do you mostly read nonfiction or do you read fiction? I read a lot of nonfiction, obviously, for my work. Sure. Some of it is just looking for ideas. Some is just admiringly reading other um, narrative nonfiction. Like I'm a huge Eric Larson fan. I love Laura Hillenbrand. Yes. Obviously, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I mean, I mean, there's just a lot of people, David Gran, a lot of people I admire who are kind of in my same field. And I try to keep up with all of their books, but I love fiction too. I read just for enjoyment. When I, I'm going to bed at night, I'm, I always tell my kids, okay, this is my reading time. I, you know, everybody's good. Okay. I get 15 minutes before I fall asleep. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they always come in though, of course, but I just, yeah, I read a lot of fiction. Um, and I, goes from classics to something that's brand new to mysteries. I'm a huge Anne Cleves fan, Louise Penny. And I also, I like poetry too. I've started, my degrees are in English literature. And so I used to read a lot of poetry and I kind of got away from it. But I recently went through, I have somebody I care very much about was very sick recently. And it was just stressful times when you turn to books and I I wanted poetry again. So mm. I went kind of in search of some poems and it's really brought this beauty and a just different dimension of reading into my life, which I've been very grateful for. Isn't that part of the beauty of reading? It's the richness of the kinds of books, the voices, the stories, and at different points in your life, you can almost always find a book that will speak to what you're looking for in some way. You, you might not even know you're looking for right. it, but so often you can find something that speaks to what's going on in your life. Absolutely. And I always say that. I say that actually about poetry, but I, I especially say it about history you know, a lot of times people will say, oh, I, I don't like history. It's, you know, I think it's boring or, well, it just never interested me. And they'll say, until I read one of your books or until I read Laura Hillenbrand or Eric Larson or something. And so I always call narrative nonfiction history, I call it the gateway drug <laughs> for history, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I say, if you don't, if you think you don't like history, you just haven't found your history, right? You haven't found nice. your writer of history or your historian, who, whoever it may be. So keep looking. You'll find it. There's, as you said, there's something for everyone. Speaking of nonfiction, I recently heard and nonfiction writers say that all good nonfiction stories, like all good fiction stories, have a theme that underlies the plot. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was thinking about this. I wonder if the underlying theme for The River of Doubt is a story of love and redemption. Kermit's mm -hmm. love for his father, and that compels him to take the trip to protect Theodore Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And then the expedition is Roosevelt's redemption from his bruising political loss. Do you agree with the idea that good nonfiction has a theme beyond the story itself 
And what would you say are the themes in the river of doubt? I do. I do agree with that. I think that sometimes one of the reasons people think they don't like history is it's just this forced march, right? It's just a series of dates and names and things like that. And that I think, takes away an essential truth of history because history is just humanity, right? I mean, it's it's just like if you travel, right? And you you go somewhere, you go to Africa or you go to Europe or wherever you are, and you're like, oh, they're just like us. You know, they might dress differently, speak a different language, eat different food, but they're just people, right? And we all want the same thing and we all experience the same things. Again, you know, the envy or arrogance or, you know, ambition, whatever it is, we can connect and we and we can connect in space, but we can connect in time as well. And so absolutely, I think that you don't just tell a story, you think about why was it important? What can we learn from it? What, yeah, what is the sort of underlying or overarching theme for that? And I I think you could pull out a lot of themes, um, I think, for this book, but certainly redemption is there and certainly love. I mean, the father-son story is very, very strong here. This idea of Kermit trying to save his father and Roosevelt trying to save his son at the same time. And that goes throughout the book. And the sacrifices that they are willing and voluntarily make for each other. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Kermit was my favorite, but this Colonel, I have so much respect for him. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about this theme of, I don't know if you would call it casual imperialism Uh (laughs) yeah well said yeah (laughs) you know the white people coming in there Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. a country Mm -hmm. that is not theirs and giving political speeches and right kind of looking their nose down at the people that culturally are part of that community and then there's even more of that when they go into the jungle Mm-hmm. picking up on their writings and their diaries. They're using words like savages. Mm-hmm. There was one part where I believe it was Roosevelt's diary. He is referring to the men that are working there in animal terms. It's just so hard for me to even hear because he was our president. There was that spirit of we're better than. Yeah. When the priest wanted them to lift him up and carry him in the jungle. Right, right, right. It's an honor. Yeah. Oh, you don't understand. It's an honor. That's absolutely true. But what was interesting to me about Theodore Roosevelt at this point, because people think of him, you think of the crazy cowboy, right? Or the the hunter. and, And he had the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, right? Which is so offensive, obviously, to South Americans. And he knew he was going to get some pushback, and rightly so, when he went on a speaking tour before this trip. What was interesting to me, though, was I think that, and this often happens to people who are open-minded, at least as you age, you learn. (laughs) And what you learn is humility, (laughs) a little modesty, respect for others. And he slowed down and he did. He actually had a great deal of respect for Rondon, who was a half native South American, had been orphaned when he was two years old and had risen through the ranks just through sheer brilliance and incredibly hard work of the Brazilian military to become the commander of their um, strategic telegraph commission. And during that, stringing a telegraph line through the Amazon 
and mapping so much of it at the same time and making contact with these people who had no contact with the outside world and showing them such respect. And Theodore Roosevelt did in turn show Rondon a lot of respect. They were co-commanders. And in fact, Rondon was and Roosevelt made sure everyone understood this. He was the real leader of this expedition. I mean, and again, rightly so. I remember at one point, they only have one chair and that someone offers it to Theodore Roosevelt. And he says, I'll sit when Rondon sits. I'm not going to have a chair if, if he doesn't. And again and again, he even when they would disagree, Roosevelt would defer to Rondon. And also the camaradas, the the people who lived there, who were their porters and upon whom they relied heavily, they loved Theodore Roosevelt because Roosevelt did appreciate how hard they were working and he would give them chocolate every night and he would tell them stories. And then when he becomes very, very ill, he insists on giving them his portion of food. In fact, Kermit, his son, and George Cherry, the American ornithologist who traveled with them, had to watch Roosevelt really carefully because he would give all of his food to the camaradas because he said, they need it. They're working. I'm too ill to do anything right now. That, to me, was reassuring to see that he understood better all the many things that go into making a person a valuable person. And the people he was traveling with all had, except for Julio, the, <laughs> the, uh, the murderer. <laughs> Nobody had any respect for him. But besides that, I think Theodore Roosevelt showed a lot of respect to the people with whom he traveled. A lot of the details that you give about the journey, the context, certainly about Theodore Roosevelt, but the other members of the expedition are so illuminated by what you tell us about early 20th century American politics, the geologic history. I mean, you talk about Pangea, (laughs) the political and sociological aspects of Brazil, the ecology of the rainforest, evolution, so, so much more. Can you tell us what interests you in shining a light on these contextual aspects of the story? And did you enter your writing projects knowing you'll be looking for that kind of surrounding contextual information? Yes. And a part of that comes from my background working at National Geographic magazine. I worked there for six years. And I always say that was my real education. I really learned about storytelling, but really about research. And I love research. It's my favorite part of the process. As I said, it takes me about five years working on a book, but 80% of that time is doing research and working on an outline and doing more research. So it's not until the last year that I I start writing, really. Yeah. So for this story, I had to get into evolution and natural history and things just to understand what's going on here. Because one of the principal questions I had when I began is, okay, uh, here you have Theodore Roosevelt. He's obviously a very, very experienced and enthusiastic hunter. You have Candida Rondon, who knows the Amazon better than anyone who doesn't actually live in it full time. And you're in the richest ecosystem on earth. So how are they starving to death? And they were starving. How is that possible? Well, I went to this river and it's deep, deep into the Amazon. You can go to the Amazon on a cruise or something. You can go to Manaus. That's not this. This I had to, I went to this little town called um, Porto Velho in um, Western Brazil. I rented a plane, I hired a pilot and we flew for hours over absolutely unbroken jungle from horizon to horizon to get to this river. It's very, very remote still today. 
And what I found when I got there, the amazing thing is it's silent. It's absolutely silent. I mean, everything's eating you, right? You're just being devoured by insects. But anything you can eat, good luck even seeing it. I mean, there were like some caimans, which are the the South American alligators, kind of disappearing into the water. I could see some monkeys like high, high up in the canopy. But besides that, it's impossible. And the answer, of course, is evolution. So everything there has evolved to either be a predator or to try to not be prey. And in order to do that, you have to be invisible, right? So you use camouflage, you use all these different techniques that they've developed over millions of years to be very, very good at what they do. And, and Roosevelt and his men didn't have a chance of finding anything. Now, that's different than the Cinta Larga, the um, people who lived there on the banks of this, of this river. And they were extremely good at themselves being silent, themselves being invisible, and being able, obviously, to survive and to hunt when they needed to. But Roosevelt and his men, they were clumsy, they were conspicuous, and they were hungry. <laughs> and I love at the end where you say it was really the Cinta Larga who can be credited for the ultimate success of that expedition because they could have ambushed them at oh. any point. Yeah. And they, for whatever reason, decided not to. Well, yeah, it was, that was another question I had. So why, why didn't they just, well, first of all, I wanted to know who these, because Roosevelt says there are some Indians there, right? Right, right. And if you read any other book before my book came out, it says the same thing. They don't know. So I was like, who, who were they? You know, they, and as you said, I mean, nobody had invited Roosevelt and his men here, you know, and they were, they could have posed a real danger to them. Mm -hmm. So who were they and why didn't they just kill them all and take what they had? And so I did a lot of research. I worked first at the American Museum of Natural History. I worked with Robert Carnero, who was then their head of anything for South America, who's an anthropologist. As I said, I went to this river and I went to um, a little town called Cacoal, where the the Brazilian Indian Protection Agency had a medical outpost. And many of the Cinta Larga come for medical care. And many of them lived the same way they they have when Roosevelt and his men um, encountered them. And I talked to them, you know, through many layers of translation, and they said they remember this is expedition has become part of their tribal history, because for them they had never seen white people, right? These these men had beards, and they were in boats. Asinta Larga did not have boats, and they were pale and hairy, and so they absolutely remembered it, and they remembered the things that that happened, and they explained to me. They said that. The Cinta Larga don't have a central chief. So essentially every man is the head of his family. And so when they have a big decision to make, if they're going to move the village or they're going to go to war, they have to have a consensus. And in the case of Roosevelt and his men, they didn't have a consensus. Some wanted to attack either out of fear or to take you know, their supplies and others were afraid to attack. And so since they didn't have a consensus, they didn't attack. But it's amazing to think if they had... Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt would have gone down this river in the Amazon and never been heard from again. Yeah. We would have never known what happened to Theodore Roosevelt. It's crazy. It's incredible to even think about. I know. I'm just curious because this is a part of their history. Looking back on it, do they look at their elders or their ancestors of having made the right decision, knowing now what they know? 
That's a really good question. I mean, they really, they didn't look at it in those terms. They looked at it as, again, as part of their tribal history. At one point, if you remember in the book, Rondon's dog Lobo is attacked and he's shot with arrows and he's killed. And they remember that. They said they remember when Simplicio drowned watching that and when they had to bury Pachon after Julio um, murdered him. So they were watching, you know, and keeping track of them, keeping an eye on them. And they remembered all of these stories. And so I think that they obviously have respect for their elders and those who came before and made the decision that seemed best for them at the time. Do they have any history of what happened to Julio? Oh, yeah. No, they didn't tell me, at least if they had. The men on the trip assumed that he probably did go try to find the Cinta Larga to get some help. You know, otherwise he just wouldn't have survived. Right. Now, as I mentioned in the book, apparently there were other times when people went to the Cinta Larga for help and were killed. Right. <laughs> and also after this expedition got back, a lot of people questioned Theodore Roosevelt and they were like, did you really put this very long, very actually important river on the map? I don't really believe what you said. And, and he said, well, you know, it's a great thing about about rivers, they're still there. So you can go check it out for yourself. You don't believe me. And several expeditions did try. One started and then quickly turned around and came back. Another, the second set out and was never heard from again. So nobody knows what happened to those people. And then finally, the third made it through and said, yeah, it's exactly as Roosevelt said it was. Yeah. Incredible. On September 28th, you are going to be giving a lecture for the 27th Annual Governor's Lecture in the Humanities. The evening will be a conversation between you and Associate Professor of Broadcasting at UNL, Rick Alloway. The conversation is titled, A Clear and Steady Eye, Storytelling and Our Shared History. I was wondering, can you give us a sneak peek at what you're hoping to share with the audience that night? And by the way, I will be in the audience um, and oh, also great. at the dinner before the lecture. So I'm looking Wonderful. forward to that. <laughs> oh, I'll look forward to meeting you in person. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Let me just say it's such an honor. I was so honored when they invited me to do this. I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. And I, I hope we'll just have a wide ranging conversation, you know, talk about I hope all four of my books, but I think we'll probably talk a lot about research and um, and a lot about the importance of history. I'm, I'm remembering and telling our stories and passing all those stories down and learning from it. And that's the idea of the clear and steady eye to not just remember our stories, but to learn from them and to use that information to correct our course. As humans, we always tend to sort of, uh oh, we're going off track again. And remember the last time that did not work out well. And that's obviously one of the really important things about history. So anyway, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a fun night and a great discussion. Well, I know that in Nebraska, this is always something that is eagerly looked forward to. And we have had just wonderful presenters mm -hmm. in the past. You mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm -hmm. So this will be exciting for the life of our state as well. Thank you. I hope so. I'm, I, it's going to be a great night. I enjoyed your book as Nancy did. What are you working on next? What can we look forward to? 
Yeah, I do have a new um, project that I'm really, really excited about. Um, and I can't say exactly what it is yet because I haven't signed the contract. I should be getting it any day. But I can say the principal character is a woman this time. And that's something I've been trying to do throughout my career. And the reason I haven't been able to do it is, although, as we know, women have done extraordinary things throughout history, other people haven't been writing about as I said, my book about Winston Churchill, I mean, he was 24, 25 years old at the time, but everybody was already paying attention to them. It was really funny because again and again, I would see people would say, oh God, I can't stand that kid, Winston Churchill, but he's going to be <laughs> prime minister one day. You know, he gets on my last nerve, but we know he's going to be prime minister one day and he's going to do great things. And so people would write about him. They would pay attention. They would write about what he was doing and just observations on him. So I had a lot to work with, but that really hasn't happened very often with women. I did one time, I spent a year trying to get a book about Marie Curie to work. But the problem with that is that, again, I don't write the cradle to grave, right? So I need a moment. And of course, that moment would be her discovery of radium. And her personal story is incredible. But the the story that revolves around the discovery of radium, it all takes place in her mind. So I need, for the kind of writing I do, I need action, right? Like yeah. physical action. And I, you know, I'd be like, well, she's still in her lab. You know, she's <laughs> still there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't really keep the pages turning um, with that. So anyway, I, I finally gave up, but I finally have found a story that and it's one of these things, again, that it's exactly what you want. It's a story that was a huge, huge deal at the time, but it has been almost completely forgotten. But everybody was writing about it. And, and I have her letters and things like that, too. So I'm really excited about it. So Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thank so I you. I can't wait to hear what it's about. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you so much. We all want to know. So people will want to stay in touch with you so they can monitor when the news becomes <laughs> public, what this okay. book is about. How do people stay in touch with what you're up to? Oh, thank you for asking. So I, I do have a website. It's just CandiceMillard.com. And I am, um, sort of to my children's horror, I am on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs> 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 and I do do like little updates and things as I'm traveling or whatever. So yeah, I am on embarrassingly also on social media. <laughs> <laughs> do they give you tips about what you should or should not be doing on social media? Yeah, it's usually just don't do that. No, right. don't. Speak. That's so embarrassing, mom. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just existing is embarrassing for your children. But. Excellent point, yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you, I really appreciated all of the research that you did. And then at the end of the book, how you wrote in where you, oh, that was from his diary. Oh, that's where you got that piece. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for including that in there. Thank you so much. There were like 50 pages of research notes at the end. <laughs> I like that because that, that was interesting to me to see all your research there and then who wrote it, where you got the, the tippets from. So yeah, I appreciate thank that. you. Yeah. I think it's important to include that. So people, cause sometimes people are like, Oh, this seems like a novel. Did this, do you, how does she really know that? We're like, well, you can look at the notes and you can see for yourself. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's been so fun having you on our front porch. We really appreciate the time that you've taken today to talk with oh, us. I've so enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you both. It was really fun. Thank you so much. 
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Nancy, I think we both really enjoyed Candace and hearing about her research that she does and how she takes one moment in someone's life and really dives deep understanding that person. Yeah. And she picked this particular trip to the Amazon to really help us to learn more about him. And just this little snippet of time, it was fascinating talking to her. At the end, we were talking there about all of her research and the 50 pages of references that she includes. I can totally see why she does that because she writes it, and I mean this complimentary, as a novel. If you didn't know it was a true story, you would think this was the creative imagination of someone who is a wonderful writer. You know, it almost seems like it is not true, but it it is. It's true. And it's fascinating. And few people know about it. So for our next episode, you and I are going to talk more about the river of doubt. Our time went so quickly with her. So I'm looking forward to our next time where we can talk a little bit more about this book. I have a suggestion in five years from now, when her book about some unnamed woman is published, we will definitely have to review that as well. I love her writing. Oh, I would love to. Well, our website is frontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month, the first and the third Wednesdays of every month. Lenny, this was super fun. Good to see you again. And talk to you, sister. Yay. (laughs) Bye-bye. See you, Nance. Bye-bye.